This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Osborne, who has been extremely well known in the world of gluten. But before we carry on, I'm actually going to ask Dr. Osborne to introduce himself. I'm sure he'll do a great a job better than I'm able to do. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I um, you know, I'm a chiropractor by trade. I'm a diplomate with the American Clinical Board of Nutrition. And uh, a big part of my background was just really graduating and finding my, my way in functional medicine. So I've been in practice for 20 years. I founded a foundation called Gluten-Free Society to help spread the word about gluten to people who were dying with autoimmune disease and not getting answers. And uh, went on later to write a book called No Grain, No Pain. It's been featured as a PBS show, uh, been featured on Netflix, Fox. We've been all over the world. New York Post, Business Insider, been featured in a number of major media channels and outlets. But uh, more than anything, I, I find myself very happy in private practice, taking care of individuals in one-on-one relationships. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Thanks. That's, that's a great start. So what I um, always try and understand when I meet extraordinary functional medicine practitioners like yourself is really about the journey because it's very seldom I meet a functional medicine practitioner who hasn't had some kind of aha moment, some epiphany, some pivot, some story, either through their own health challenges or someone in their family or something that's happened. So I'm, if you don't mind sharing that with us, what led you into this journey that into the gluten story, into the work that you do, if you can just give us a little bit of that kind of background. Sure, sure. I was training in the VA hospital in rheumatology, actually. It was part of my uh, part of my training and in, in, uh, in graduate school. And I was very frustrated because I'm a veteran of the Air Force. And so in the VA hospital, you're treating veterans every day, right? And these people, you know, made it the biggest sacrifice for their country and they've got sick over it or they were sick as a result of something they'd been exposed to in life. And so here we were seeing patients with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and scleroderma and ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, you know, you name it, right? We, we looked at autoimmune diseases as a, as a rule of thumb. And the, the, the day I, I got to this internship, they handed me a book. My attending physicians handed me a book and said, you need to read it. You need to know it. Don't come back without reading it or knowing it. So I did. You know, I'm a reader. I'm a student. So I highlighted a lot of different things. It's, it, the book was called The Primeron Rheumatological Disease. And so I come back, you know, the next day and several days after that, and here what I see is this pattern of prescribing methotrexate, which is a cancer drug for, for pain, uh, this pattern of giving steroids, this pattern of giving non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, drugs like hydroxychloroquine uh, for pain, for rheumatological pain. And this pattern of when that fails, the surgeons come in to do their consult on Wednesdays. And so these people that have been being drugged for years, their joints still failed, their pain is still there. And now that surgeons want to come in and do a full replacement 
of the joint, knee replacement surgeries, et cetera, right? And I never understood why we would sit by idly watching these people be drugged out of their minds to control their pain when it didn't really control their pain and it really didn't lead to better outcomes. And what it really led to was a surgical intervention that failed because these people were so destroyed by the drugs, years of the drugs, that they couldn't recover from the surgery. So it made no sense to even do the surgery. And nobody was talking about diet or lifestyle or nutrition, even though the book they gave me to read, okay, The Perimeter on Rheumatological Disease, yeah. made note of diet and lifestyle and nutrition, particularly at, you know, we, we, and I kept asking, well, what causes rheumatoid arthritis? What causes ankylosing spondylitis? And, and my attending physicians would say, well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, the book you wow. gave me says otherwise. The book you gave me says that these are triggers, right? So we know that infection is a trigger. We know that nutritional deficit's a trigger. We know that um, gluten can be a trigger. As a matter of fact, there's, there's tons of research on gluten and celiac disease and rheumatoid arthritis, right? This crossover. And so why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we testing these people to see whether or not diet might have an impact? And I was told that that's ridiculous. Then I'm like, why did you make me read the book? It's not ridiculous. It's not even my idea. Like I'm not, it's not even my mm -hmm. original thought, right? So anyway, I went to the, to the library. I was in Houston. So the Jesse Jones Medical Library, this was before computers where you could just go, you know, yeah. to the National Library of Medicine and pull anything you wanted to pull. I'd actually go through dusty archives of old, uh, of old uh, journals and print, right? And I had to pull this research, right? Remember Microfish, those machines you yes, go and you find and well. then you go pull the book and right and yeah. so here I was is pulling all this research I bring in stacks of literature on juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis and fasting and gluten-free diets actually being beneficial and I'm like okay you know this is not me just some young green doctor trying to you know change the world this is your colleagues and your peers actually doing research that says you should be looking at these things and you're not and that's frustrating to me because these people need more respect than what they're getting they need better outcomes than what they're getting and i was promptly told to be quiet and to behave yeah. um and so then i went back to the library and i pulled research on fasting and i showed you know research that you know fasting for 48 hours could diminish pain dramatically and these, and these individuals. And then I brought more research on fish oil and how fish oil could be used as an alternative yeah. to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and was equally effective. And, uh, and I was, again, I, I just kept getting dissuaded from trying to do anything different. So I left, I left the hospital, uh, the VA hospital, um, I won't say disgruntled, just disappointed, right? And so one of my first private practice patients was a little girl named Ginger. And I wrote about her in my book, No Grain, No Pain. But Ginger, at the age of two, was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And, uh, you know, her knees would swell up so severely she couldn't crawl or walk the way other kids started to crawl and progress to walking. So she was really at a disadvantage. But from the age of two to the age of nine, she was medicated with methotrexate. She had a port embedded in her arm. So she was in and out of the hospital so frequently for pain management. And at nine years of age, the doctor looked at this little girl's mom and said, you need to go home and get your affairs in order. There's oh, yeah. nothing more we can do. She's probably got six months to live. Now imagine that being a parent. Imagine, imagine trusting that doctor to care for your child, right? And, and to do the right thing and miserably failing at it and now telling you, go dig a hole 
and get a tombstone created. What a, I mean, what a tragedy, right? So this little girl had gluten sensitivity and that, that was the very first test I ran on her. We ran, you know, the genetics of, of gluten and we found that that was positive. Um, within six months, she had the port out of her arm. So she wasn't dead, right? And within a year, she was in total remission off all medication. And today she's graduated college and she's, you know, out there in the world doing great things. All because we changed your diet, all because we asked a different set of questions, right? And it, and it wasn't Amazing. a leap. And it wasn't even, for, again, it wasn't my original idea. I, don't, I can't take yeah. credit for it. But I can take credit for being, um, we'll just say tenacious at wanting people to get better and not accepting the status quo of drug you into, into, into poor health and then do surgery. That, that to me was, was terrible. So I knew at that time, after, after watching Ginger, you know, over that year, I watched her, watched her get better. And then I watched her thrive. I knew that, that this had to be in the public eye. Like we had to get this message out there. And that's when I found a gluten-free society. And that's why I did it. It was a free, I, I built it, coded. I learned how to code, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is how I, you know, most people won't go that far, but I did. I learned how to code HTML to build this website, to get this information up so that the world could understand that the power of diet change could literally save a life. And that knowing that we have 46 million cases of autoimmune disease just in the U.S., I knew that many of those people, you know, are dying, right? They're being drugged. They're being, they're being medicated into other illnesses. Many of the drugs today, like your, your um, not just your, your d- disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, but also your biologics, which cause cancer and destroy health yep. in other ways. Yep. Those aren't solutions, right? They're not solutions at all. Uh, they're myths. And, and anyway, I knew I needed to reach people in that way. So I started and founded Gluten-Free Society. And that's just been what has driven me ever since. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing story. I mean, the sad thing is how many doctors are still not listening. So I'm um, just a personal story that actually happened last week is my mother's closest friend, we had lunch and she's got rheumatoid arthritis and was telling me that she had gone to a specialist, a rheumatologist, and she had gone to a new rheumatologist because she was in pain all the time. And she would wake up in the morning, take pain medication, go back to bed for two hours until she was actually able to get out of bed. And when she went to the rheumatologist, she was told, your blood tests are fine, so you're fine. That was her answer. And I said to her, like, how much of your of your life are you in pain she said 80 percent. i said 80 percent. you're in pain and the rheumatologist is telling you fine like the, there's still this crazy insanity going out and i was like wait we really need you to get you to a functional integrative practitioner and of course we did and the first thing i did was remove gluten the first thing and this is years and years and years of being treated by rheumatologists so I mean your story just resonates and unfortunately there's still a a lot of a lot of education to be done but I mean I love the fact that you know you talk about we don't necessarily have to do the research ourselves sometimes it's just about being the messenger and having a voice and and reaching out and I think that really brings me to another question so for, for others like you who find something that really is, is, is a major kind of health concern, a real crisis that's happening in our allopathic medicine, um, have a message. 
what are the greatest challenges you experienced in trying to break through? I mean, obviously you left the VA, um, but how? What? What are some of the challenges that that others like you will experience when they're trying to get a message out? I think the biggest challenge practitioners are going to experience is they get in their own way. Um, I, I don't think it's the world is not the challenge. The world is not the hurdle. Society is not the hurdle. Um, the practitioner is their own hurdle. And so what I mean by that is many practitioners have this, this glorious education, right? This wonderful message, this wonderful um, story, if you will, maybe similar to mine. Maybe it was instead of somebody else they knew that was sick, maybe they overcame their own health struggle, right? So they have this this wonderful story of transformation, which is fairly true of most functional practitioners. They Most people get into it. It's a passion project because something yes. else failed them. True. And the reason why is that the society doesn't teach functional. Society does, doesn't teach anymore. They don't teach work for reward. Society teaches instant reward, instant gratification through pharmacy. And that it's, it, it's a pipe dream, right? And so practitioners, once they realize that pipe dream is, is smoke and mirrors, then, then they find this way to functional and then they get in their own way. Either they have what, what's called oftentimes imposter syndrome, where they think they can't yeah. become the expert. Um, and so they, they don't feel like they can get on a stage with somebody like myself as an example, which, you know, when I declared my expertise in this area, I didn't get permission from anyone. Yeah. It, it actually was a strategy. This, the strategy that I knew I needed was I had to be on the same footing because I'm a chiropractor, right? And people look at chiropractors as, oh, the quack chiropractor, right? The alternative weirdos, right? I understand that. And I, and I know where I come from and I know where, where, where people's minds are. Not, not that everybody thinks that, but again, if we're talking about the masses, the broader, the broader. So, so I knew I had to, I knew I had to overcome that objection. And so I, I, I didn't have a problem with, with trying to strategically think that out. So here's what I did. I called Dr. Alessio Fasano, um, you know, world leading expert, discoverer of leaky gut, Harvard, now at Harvard. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, we were speaking on the same stage and, uh, I said, look, I want to donate money to your foundation because I believe in what you're doing. And I think that research is very important, but I'd also like to get an interview with you. And he very, very gracefully accepted. And so I was able to be on the same stage with him in a one-on-one -on -one conversation where I could showcase um, him and his knowledge, but I could also showcase myself, myself. right? Because as a chiropractor, we, we went toe to toe in scientific speak and that, you know, that if you're passionate about something and you really understand a subject well, you should never have imposter syndrome if you truly did your homework. So strategically, I, I called him. I got an interview with him. I invited him out to speak. I, I put on an event called Glutenology. And this was an event, and I did it in the med center in Houston. And, and I strategically thought that out, too, because um, the med center is where things happen. And Houston is one of the biggest, most important med centers in the world, right? If we yeah. look at like MD Anderson and all the hospital complexes. So I held this conference there and I invited Dr. Fasano. I invited Mrs. United States at the time. Her name was Shannon Ford and her platform was celiac disease and gluten sensitivity because I knew she would bring in people. And I knew that if we were on the same stage together that, you know, speaking from the standpoint of expertise, 
when you surround yourself by other people who are viewed by the population as experts, you become an expert, right? So Mm -hmm. this was my original strategy was to create an event. We had thousands of people come. We had Mrs. United States. We had Dr. Fasano. I taught two physicians before the event started that morning. I actually taught a master class on the science behind gluten sensitivity. And we had like 50 physicians, GI doctors, medical doctors, family practitioners come and pay money to, to learn more about gluten sensitivity. And so that was really, I would say that event was the springboard by which I overcame any degree of imposter syndrome and thrusted myself into the light with other experts, researchers um, who were also considered to be you know, part of the leading mind or the leading edge in, in the realm of gluten. I, I really love your story. And the reason I'm, I'm smiling so much that you can't hear me smiling is that um, I have a, have a slightly similar story. I was a dietitian who had been working in nutrigenomics for years. I was really nothing. I was no one. I was one of the few dietitians who cared about nutrigenomics. This is in 2000 before it was spoken about. And I had been a huge follower of Dr. Ruth DeVusk and she was my mentor. She was my you know, she wrote the first book on nutrigenomics and I arrived in the USA with a South African dietetics degree and I phoned up and I said, um, you know, I've been following you. You wrote this book. Um, I've been working in this space. I have an idea for a book. Uh, please, will you meet with me? I'd like to write a book with you. And being the kind and kind of generous and humble person she is, she agreed to it and wrote the book with her. And it, and like your event was your kind of pivot moment, that writing the book with Ruth was the same because I went from being no one, totally unknown, and then suddenly having my name on the book with the number one person who was the number one person in nutrigenomics suddenly a lot gave me a platform. And I think, you know, to speak to people often say to me, and I'm sure you get this, like, how did you, how did you get so lucky to be an expert in nutrigenomics? And I'm like, it wasn't actually luck. It, and, and, and I love that you speak to strategy. It was like, you, you really thought it through. You're like, I need to align myself with the experts in the field. I need to find myself a platform to speak out. So I, I know I'm kind of smiling a lot, but it just speaks so much to, to that drive to say, I, I have a message, I need to share it, and I need to find a place. So I'm, I'm going to look, ask for some more examples. When I, when I look at what you've done, whether it's Netflix, it's radio stations, it's writing the book, um, it's the symposium that you've done. Um, there's so much impact. And whenever I meet functional medicine, real like influencers, I always look for how did you build such an impact? So you've given me a fantastic example. I wonder if you can just think a little bit more that we can share with others of what other things they can do to really put themselves out there and find a, pla- a platform in the way that you've done. I mean, that that really speaks to it's not like one thing or not like one, like we'll just say it's not one strategy. It's not like one thing you can do because it doesn't success doesn't work that way. I would say the first thing that that you really should think about if you want to reach more people with your powerful message is think about your message. You know, so many people do it backwards. They put the cart before the horse. They haven't really clearly defined their message, clearly defined their mission, their goals. And so they don't have a roadmap to know where they're going. And so then they just kind of meander through the day to day, right? They, they don't have a plan. There's no strategy. Strategy has to be 
underlying what you're trying to do. So for me, what was that? That was, I sat down and I said, what is my, what, what's my reason? Like, what's my big, why, why, why yes. am I doing what yeah. I'm doing? Right. And so I, I, I said, okay, why? Because veterans are dying. Okay. But veterans aren't the only ones that are dying. People with autoimmune disease, it's, it's, you know, if we were to gather all of the different forms of autoimmune disease and cluster them the way we do cancer and heart disease, autoimmune disease would trump cancer and heart disease is number one cause of death. Right. So people are dying to get this information and what are you going to do about it? So that's what I asked myself. Okay. 46 million people a year. That's one in seven people in the United States have a disease that they're probably going to die from. The average person with autoimmune disease has a 10 year shorter lifespan and a quality of life. That's quality of life. I would absolutely. So how can we, how can we change that? Okay. Number one, is you got to have a platform by which to speak from, but you have to have a clear message. And so our clear message was, we're doing this to save lives. And, you know, we, we actually have a hashtag, save a hundred million lives is, is my hashtag. And I would encourage any of you to don't dream small, dream big, because, you know, when, when you dream big, even if you don't hit all your goals, you'll hit more, far more bigger goals than if you dream small. And that's not to say that you can't be a practitioner and have a private practice and help the people in your community, but dream as big as you, as you can. Right. And so for me, that was a hundred million. Right. So we created a platform around saving lives. And so we created our why. Right. And so when, once we have our why, once you know what your why is and your message is succinct and clear, now you can get granular because part of success is knowing, you know, what your why is and, and how you want to get there. But the other part is marketing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is where a lot of practitioners fail because they don't understand that marketing also is very important. You, you don't have to be a marketer, but you have to understand that marketing is what gets your message to the Absolutely. masses. And so if you have a why, then you can get the right people on your team. Okay. So for me, it was never about, I need to become an expert marketer. It was more, I knew I needed marketing, right? Strategy, right? So because I knew I needed marketing, I could seek out the people who understood marketing and I could hire those people, right? To help me refine my message, to help me get it out in front of more people, right? And so when your mission is big and when your goals and your vision and your why is big, the, the next step in that process is bringing on the people that are experts in, in marketing and in internet and in social media and the things that you don't have time to do as a practitioner, but that need to be done in an effort to really, really reach the masses. And so what we did, what I did originally was I made a lot of mistakes, probably like most people who are successful yeah. in business. I learned how to code. I should never have learned how to code to build a website. <laughs> I should have just paid somebody to do it. But at the time, that was what was necessary, you know, yeah. for my journey. I had to learn how to do that in order to get to the to the next level. But that was a lesson I learned. At, at that point, I knew, okay, I'm no longer going to be my own marketer and I'm no longer going to be my own coder, right? So you hit a certain level where you bring on this person, you outsource that job, you get this job done, and you make sure that those people are very well aware of your why, okay? Yes. And that the reason why that's important is because when you're bringing on team members, if they don't understand your mission, you might get mediocrity at best out of them, right? You might get, oh, I built this website and it's kind of so-so out of them, as opposed to this doctor 
wants to save 100 million lives, I get to be a part of that. I'm going to do the best job I can do. And one of one of the first people I brought on, I saved his life. He had right. celiac disease. He was a web designer. He's a web designer, lived in the Philippines. He was actually from the UK. And uh, I found him through a friend. And uh, anyway, he had celiac disease. He was wasting away to nothing. And I saved his life. He actually saved his life as he was working on my website. And so he did such a brilliant job, right? He did such a brilliant job for me. And so we just started to look for the right people. Um, and it's not that you hunt out sick people who you help and then you get them no. to work for you. But, no. but sometimes that's the way it works, right? Yeah. But we just wanted to make sure that we had the right people on the bus. We wanted to make sure that we had the right people who wanted to be on this team and wanted to help us achieve that goal. Because I think most practitioners think they have to handle it all on their own. They have to be, yeah. they have to be the computer expert. They got to know how to vacuum the floor. They got to, yeah. you know, they got to do it all. Right. And what you have to realize is that all great things, when you think about the greatest projects in mankind's history, they were all done by teams. And those teams always had a huge why, right? And that's what you want to think about. So don't, don't think about how you need to go about learning how to code or doing this thing or doing that thing. Think about why first, then think about who, okay, who you need to help you accomplish your why, and then, then think about how. And don't, don't do that backwards because when you do it backwards, you will struggle and struggle and struggle. Yeah. Because as one person, you can accomplish great things, but as a team, you can accomplish far more, far more than you ever could by yourself. Magnificently spoken. Thank you so much. That's that. I mean, it, I couldn't have put it better. That's really beautiful. So to end off, I'm going to leave you with my most obvious question is obviously my background's in genetics, and that's been my, my why and my purpose and my career. So I would love to hear your opinion of, of how do you think genetics is going to impact the work you do? Genetics is going to impact functional medicine. Genetics is going to impact your 100 million that, that you're reaching out to. Where do you think we are? Where do you think we're going with genetics? I think we're in a super infant stage. Um, you know, I, I implore genetics and in gluten sensitivity genes. We, we test for different alleles associated with yeah. celiac and non-celiac HLA, gluten yeah. sensitivity. I think genetics is an important part of what doctors need to do moving forward. But I think what we're going to find more importantly, even than human genetics, um, you know, your what you inherit from mom and dad, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, you have your 23 chromosomes, you have mitochondrial DNA and you have That's a right. microbiome and that microbiome has DNA. Also has its own DNA. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. And you have a microbiome, a mold uh, biome, and you have a viro biome and you have so you have all this and this is all unexplored territory and i think what's going to happen with the power of computing and technology is we're going to learn more and more and more about how these things cluster and i think as we as we get that power of computing together i think we're going to be able to personalize people's healthcare more and more and more i think the future of medicine is personalized i think it i think ultimately it's it's first step is it's up to the person to recognize that they have a health issue as opposed to living with an issue and accepting that as their norm. But once that person reaches that recognition, kind of like an alcoholic, once they realize they have a problem, then they can seek yeah. out the help that they need. And I think that's where the combination of functional medicine and technology is, is really going to help restore uh, faith in, in medicine. Because today, where is medicine? Medicine, we've got 
if we look at modern medicine, right, we've got 70 years of, of some good things, right? Antibiotic, one of the, arguably one of yeah. the greatest discoveries of all time, say has saved hundreds and hundreds of millions of lives. Uh, no, no argument there. But the vast majority of medicines... Um, chronic medicine, definitely. Yeah, for chronic disease. I mean, I'm not talking about emergency medicine. Chronic, yeah. chronic medicine. diseases, they don't work. And the outcomes are poor. And we spend $3 trillion a year on healthcare. And the outcome is we have more heart disease, more cancer, more diabetes, more obesity, more autoimmune it's disease. It's not getting better. It's not getting yeah. better. And I think where medicine at is, is, is it's starting, honestly, people are starting to see that. There's a distrust that's developing. I mean, just mm-hmm. look at what's happening in the world right now with, with COVID and, and not that we're going to get into all that, but I mean, you know, the vaccine travesty, this experiment that's, that's being injected on so many people. And there's so many people that won't do it because there's a distrust and that distrust, that level of distrust is growing because we've given the medical community our complete trust for so long, right? And they failed us. They've honestly just, just failed us. And so I think medicine in its traditional form is in its death rows. And I think that's why you're seeing so much aggression that's coming out now is, is it what happens when something is dying is, is it, I don't know if you've ever lived on a farm. They hold on, hold on tighter. Yeah. Yeah, they hold on tighter and they squirm a lot. And yeah. and that leads to a lot of side effect uh, and ripples. And I think that's where we're at. I hope that's where we're at. I really hope we're seeing hope a transformation so. in the way the world views health and wellness and the way the world views pursuing health and wellness. Well, I think that's that's a great way to end and something for hopefully that's, that's we can look forward to. I do think there's a huge transition coming. I think there is an awakening that's individuals are taking responsibility more responsibility for their decisions around their own health and hopefully that's when they start seeking out practitioners like yourself and the amazing work that you're doing so thank you so much for sharing very inspirational journey and i look forward to following your work for many many more years so thank you very much dr osborne well, you're welcome thank you so much for having me as a guest thank you for listening to the power of genetics podcast Brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.